following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into, into confusion, whoever they may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, Serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Logan, come on up and I'm going to pray for you. Father, we thank you for uh, the many gifts that you've given to Logan. We thank you for uh, the way that he has sought your face as he has uh, prepared uh, for this sermon. Pray that as he stands and speaks, you would anoint him with your spirit and fit his feet in the confidence that comes from knowing you as Lord. Amen. I must admit, uh, a little bird told me that I had 20 minutes for this sermon, but the running order says I have 15 so, uh, if anyone wants to shoot out some prayers for that as well, I would probably be um, m- much blessed by it. Um, okay, thank you, uh, Aaron, for uh, permitting me to preach. I haven't done this in years, so bear with me. Um, okay, Galatians 5, 1 through 5. Uh, we all have to admit that this is a bit of a thorny and complex 
text. And I really want this text, which I consider to be incredibly powerful, to really speak to us. But in order for that to be successful, I have to walk us through a few things about the text. So please bear with me uh, as we just explain a few things about, about this text, which uh, are, are somewhat complex, but we can get them. And if we do get them, uh, then the text will speak even more powerfully to us. So, um, verse number one. Uh, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's deal with one of these uh, issues first in this, in this verse. The first issue, how on earth does it make sense for Paul to say, Hi, you are free, and because you're so free, you should do these specific things. Because in political discourse, which we are all, you know, we all hear about in, um, when, we're, when we're kids, we're young, we, we grow up, we hear about freedom, we hear about liberty, we hear about people having rights and people having freedoms. Uh, and when we use this word freedom, what we mean is having as many available options to choose from as possible. So if you have three options to choose from in your life, you have that amount of freedom. But if you have a thousand options to choose from, you have more freedom. So freedom is understood in terms of the opposite of limitation. More limitation means less freedom. Less limitation means more freedom. I'm going to hazard a guess and say Paul just does not define freedom in that way. (laughs) Um, No surprise there, I believe. Um, uh, Let's imagine a scenario in order to explain how this might work. Uh, for Paul. Uh, let's say somebody is in prison. They've been in prison for 15 years. Why would we say that they're not free? Well, in one sense, you could say, well, they're limited, so they're not free. But in, in quite another sense, they're not free because they're not able to be who they're supposed to be. What we're supposed to be as humans is people who run out into the world, flourish with one another, connect with one another, create things, make things, enact justice in the world. Many of those things can't really happen in a prison context. And in that sense, because people can't be who they're truly created to be, they are not free. So we might say that if somebody is imprisoned and then they are set free from prison, what should they then do? Should they then deliberate and say, hmm, well, in my freedom, I can choose to either stay in this cell and have them lock me up for another 10 years, Or in my freedom, I can choose to go into the world and live the life that I'm supposed to live. Uh, You would say, that's a ridiculous kind of deliberation. Uh, People probably shouldn't think that if they're about to be set free from prison. You would say, if you're free, go be free. That's what's happening in this text. The first thing that is spoken to believers in Christ is a word of liberation, which is a word of permission. You may. You may go out and be who you're created to be. But because what we can be in Christ is also what we should be, then the you may immediately takes the form of you must. And in that sense, we are obligated to do, to to love and serve the Lord and love and serve one another because we are free. But it's an obligation in the sense of an invitation. You have been invited to something so wonderful and so glorious which you otherwise would have no access to, that it would be utterly ridiculous for you to turn it down. In the same way that it would be an obligation of somebody probably to leave prison if they were set free. So that's how Paul can say, you are free, and you've been freed in order to be this kind of specific 
believer, a specific creature. So freedom is actually found paradoxically to us. Freedom is found not in the ability to do whatever we want, but in actually limiting ourselves to be specific kinds of people. People who don't hate one another, who are not selfish, who don't enact injustice in the world, but specifically the kinds of people that do justice and do love the Lord and do love one another. So that's how Paul can say, for freedom Christ has set you free, therefore you should do these things. He's inviting them, summoning them to live in the glorious life that they have been um, invited to in Christ. Okay, Um, next bit. Um, We'll we'll come back to that at the end. Um, Do not therefore submit to a yoke of slavery. Okay, what is Paul fighting against here when he talks about slavery? Uh, One common interpretation might state that the yoke of slavery is the Mosaic Torah. And I'm going to translate that word not as law, but as Torah, because when Paul speaks of the law, he's not talking about any kind of commands. I believe he's talking about the specific commands that were given to Israel at Sinai and in the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. Um, so, So one interpretation might say that the yoke of slavery is the Mosaic Torah. I don't really think this is right, and I think that if we're not careful... Uh, we can interpret this text in such a way that is really uncomfortably harsh to our Jewish neighbors. And because a correct interpretation of a text means that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves and love others um, well, um, we need to make sure that we don't interpret this in a way that will actually be harmful um, to those who are Jewish, either non-Christian or Christian, Jew- or Christian Jewish themselves. Um, I would say that Paul doesn't think that Torah observance is bad. And I think this is really important to understanding this text. He doesn't think Torah observance is bad. Um, he's free to say in, in Romans 3 uh, that Jews have an advantage. They were given the oracles of God first. Think of it this way. Um, it would probably be better to hear about the Lord from when you're five years old than waiting, never hearing about the Lord until you're 45. So if you grow up in a Christian home, you have an advantage because you've heard God's speech, you've heard about the gospel ahead of time before some of these other people. And in that sense... The Jews who have the Mosaic Torah before Christ came kind of had a leg up. Now, it didn't determine necessarily that they were going to become believers, and that doesn't also mean that Gentiles can't become believers, but the law does give them a bit of an advantage. So the law isn't bad. The Torah isn't bad. In Romans 14, furthermore, um, Paul will say that if there are Jewish neighbors in your congregation who are really uncomfortable with eating meat sacrificed to idols or really uncomfortable with eating pork, don't eat pork in front of them. That will hurt their conscience conscience and make them really uncomfortable. And so in order to love your neighbor, if you're in a mixed context of Gentile believers and Jewish believers, then uh, you probably would have to adopt some of the commands of the Mosaic Torah in order to love your neighbor. Now, in that sense, in that specific context, a Gentile obeying the Mosaic Torah is a good thing. Why? Because they're obeying it to love their neighbor. So the problem in Galatians isn't that they want to obey the Torah. It's why they want to obey the Torah. So why do they want to obey the Torah? So what's happening in Galatia? Um, These people have come into the Galatian church. I'm going to call them agitators because that's what Paul calls them. Uh, And what they've said is, okay, you are Gentiles, but if you are Gentiles and you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have to express your Christian identity in this specific way, in the way outlined in the Mosaic Torah. 
Um, think about it this way. Imagine if I said, um, imagine I was the director of music at the cathedral, and I create this wonderful choral music that has like really high notes and everyone's like singing in Latin. They don't do that in the cathedral necessarily, but like imagine if that were the case. Um, and then let's, I mean, that kind of music is a gift from God and people would be worshiping and people are able to connect with God through that kind of music. And it's so appropriate to the building and it has history. And of course, that kind of music there is good. And we praise God that we have it. However, if I stumble down to Nick's and I see things like electric pianos and drums and electric guitars, and I said, okay, the only, let's, let's be real guys. The only way to worship God is to do it in the way that we do it, up on the hill in the cathedral. What that would be is that would mean that I would be taking a specific way of worshiping God, and I would say this has to be the only way that people can worship God. Now, obviously, there's a counter-argument to this. It's quite simple. Um, that music is great for that context, and, and for those people at that time, in that, in that kind, with that kind of history— and at Nix, we are kind of a, a bit of a different church, and so we have some different kinds of worship. This is Paul's counter-argument against what's happening in Galatia. Um, the Torah was a, a law that was given to Israel at a specific time, at a specific place, for specific purposes, and it wasn't necessarily meant for Gentiles to obey it all the time. It was one legitimate and really, really good way to connect with and worship God but it is not the only way. So, um, what Paul is saying uh, throughout Galatians is the Torah's value is dependent. What do I mean by that? Um, the Torah is only good um, if it is used for a good purpose. So if you use the Torah and you use it to worship God or you use it to love your neighbor as you would in Romans 14, then great. The Torah is good and you're using it well. But if you force Gentiles to obey the Torah, and you want Gentiles to obey the Torah so much so that you end up harming them in the process, then you've done something very, very bad. So imagine um, if I was talking about money. So I would say that money is neither good nor bad. Its value in any context depends upon what it's used for. So if you use money to love your neighbor, enact justice in the world, contribute to charities and help uh, those around you who are in need, help your brothers and sisters, help the poor, etc., um, then that use of money is great. But does that mean that, that money is the only good in the world? No. There are many other good things that are in the world, and also um, money can be used for very bad things. Money can be used to be selfish and to steal from people and to enact injustice in the world and can lead you to do many, many, many horrible things in order to get more money and more money. So, in the same way, even though the Torah is good, its value is dependent or contingent, depending upon what it's used for. This is why Paul says in 5.6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but faith working through love. So it's not worse or better to be Jewish or non-Jewish, um, but what matters is how you use these practices towards love. So um, what Paul is going to argue is that Christ is the only thing of value. It's the only thing that is ultimately valuable, and it gives everything else its contingent value. So there's nothing else in the world that is of ultimate value that we say, this is the be-all, end-all of what is good. It is only Jesus Christ 
and his self-gift to us in the cross and resurrection. Um, But if you say... Um, for example, well, I also think that money is the, is, the best, is the best way of being good and is the best thing in the world. There's going to be comp- some competition there. As Jesus says in the Gospels, you cannot serve God and money. Um, so similarly, um, if, you, if you mistake something that is contingent for something that is of ultimate value, you end up dethroning Christ from his rightful place. And that is why, if you accept Torah observance, says Paul, you are cut off from Christ. Not because Torah observance is bad, but because of the reason that they're accepting Torah observance. And the reason that they are accepting it is because they believe that it is what is of ultimate value. And therefore, they believe that it's the only way to worship God. Or that's the arguments that they are falling into. This is what slavery is. We're still on verse 1. This is what slavery is. The yoke of slavery is not the Mosaic Torah or Judaism or or, or those types of things. The the yoke of slavery is the notion that something that is of contingent value is actually of ultimate value. So what's the problem with doing that? Um, Again, let's take the money analogy. If I say money is of ultimate value... Eventually, there's going to come a time when I have to choose between pursuing money and loving my neighbor. And if I say that money is of ultimate value, then I will fail to love my neighbor. So what have I done? I've confused something that is of dependent value with what is ultimately valuable. And in the process, I end up not caring about my neighbor because I end up caring about this contingent, worldly Um, not absolutely good thing. Um, So, similarly, in Galatia, the agitators want the Gentiles to obey the Torah so bad to the extent that they end up harming them. And this is what is said throughout the letter. They are troubling you. They are agitating you. They are persecuting you, either in chapter 4. And in these ways, that because they think that the Torah is that which is of ultimate value, they end up not properly loving their Gentile neighbors for whom the Torah was never actually given. Um, So, that is why in this text there is a contrast between slavery and the freedom to love your neighbor. So, if we go to verse 13, um, you were called in freedom. Again, think invited to a life of freedom permitted to leave the prison of slavery. Um, You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, which would be any kind of worldly living or merely human kinds of understanding of of what is valuable or what is good. Um, But through love, become enslaved to one another. So what this is saying is that the freedom that we have in Christ, i.e. the freedom to know that Christ is the only thing of value and gives everything else that's contingent and dependent value in certain contexts, means that we are able to love our neighbors well. Uh, And I want to say a few things about this uh, text because it is quite quite explosive. Um, Some translations of your Bible will say, serve one another through love. Um, I like most translations, uh, but I really think that this fails to capture 
just how radical and shocking this sentence actually is and the vision that it outholds for us. Paul is really saying, quite literally, become enslaved to one another through love. And that probably sounds really uncomfortable to us. And that is exactly what Paul meant to do with it. Slavery is a relationship of domination. It's a relationship of hierarchy. It's a relationship in which one person's interests, this is normal slavery, in which one person's interests are met at the expense of the well-being of another person. Uh, the other person, the, the slave in a normal slave relationship is understood merely as a tool. They are not treated as a person. They don't have their own interests that are important. Their well-being is not cared about for themselves. They are only seen as an extension of and property of a master who uses them for whatever he or she wills. But with one word, one another, or to one another, become enslaved to one another, is one word. Paul takes an essentially vertical and hierarchical relationship of domination and he turns it on its side and he makes it a hierarchy that goes both ways. Up until this point, to my knowledge, no Greek writer had ever used these two words next to each other, become enslaved one another. And in this relationship, which is a radically uh, a, a radically confusing and paradoxical and yet freeing relationship, each member of the body defers to the interests of the other. So in this, in this relationship, we see ourselves as servants of everyone else, so that we see ourselves as members of a community, as members of a body through which everyone depends on one another. Think of it like an arch. If everyone's enslaved to one another, then as, as with the, the beams of an arch, Um, one arch goes this way and one arch goes this way. And if you take away one of them, the other is going to fall. Let's assume this is a big one. (laughs) The other one is going to fall. Now, in this relationship of the two sides of an arch, um, one arch supports the other, but they can't stand without the other. So both serve one another, yet at the same time, both are dependent upon one another. And I think this is really important. The command is in the plural. The command is not, you as an individual, be a slave to everyone else. It's you as a group, become enslaved to one another. The goal is not that everyone would be expended and poured out and lose all of their energy and become only a kind of vessel with no no interests of their own. Rather, the vision is that everyone would be built up together in harmony, like an arch, such that everyone is sustained and everyone's needs are met. And that means that in order for us to obey this command, we, most, we, we both must serve others and permit others to serve us. Or that command cannot be fulfilled. So the goal is not that you would be selfless or altruistic, or necessarily completely so emptying of yourself that you don't actually let yourself be loved. The goal is that everyone would be together in mutual love. Three questions for us. First, do we experience the command to love one another as an invitation? This is how Paul sees it. 
Be free. Come. I'm inviting you to this wonderful, blessing, uh, blessed and flourishing life. Do we love one another reluctantly? Or do we see it as a way, in, in the same way that one might see escaping from, not escaping, being set free from prison? Secondarily, is there anything in our lives that we value more than Christ? Is there anything that we take that's contingent and think and act like it's absolute, act like it's the ultimate good? Because if so, eventually we will fail to love our neighbor. Now this includes really good things. If we think that family is the ultimate good, or education is the ultimate good, or social reputation is good, or musical skills are the ultimate good, all those things are good things, and some of those can be considered real gifts from God. But if we confuse them with what really gives them value, which is their use towards loving others and loving Christ, then we will fail to love our neighbor. So is there anything in our lives, even good things, that we actually confuse with what is ultimate? Thirdly and lastly, how can we, as a church, become a more concrete and clear image of the command to become enslaved to one another through love? Which consists of two things. How can we put the interests of others before ourselves? How can we consider ourselves to be instruments of love for others? But also... How do you need to let others serve you? And how do you need to let others love you well? I'll pray. Father, I thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ and the freedom to love one another. Father, I pray that you would convict us and show us ways that we can love one another better. Um, Give us the courage and the humility to be served by our neighbors. And give us the courage and the eagerness to accept the invitation and the call to love one another. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.